0: If you would, turn in your Bible to uh, Luke chapter 19, verse 28. Luke chapter 19, verse 28. Title of my message is, King of My Heart. King of My Heart. I want everybody to say that with me. King of My Heart. And that's what this day is all about. You know, we'll focus today on Jerusalem But really, all of the events that we celebrate as the Christian church um, really has to do with your heart. It really has to do with your acceptance or your rejection of Jesus as the king of your heart. So as we study this story, just be aware of that. You say, well, man, I'm not going to decide. You already have. There's no in-between ground, either he is or he isn't, and so we all decide that. You can't go out of the room and say, well, man, I'm not going to decide that. Well, if you've already went out of the room and haven't decided he's the king of your heart, then it's been determined. And so as we, as we study this today, let's really think about ourselves, put ourselves in the position these people are in, and let's just pray about that phrase, king of my heart. In Luke chapter 19, verse 28, it says, After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead. He was going up to Jerusalem. As he he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you. And as you enter, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Now, in the other Gospels, you you, you find out, like in Matthew mentions, that not only is it a colt that has never been ridden, a really delicate, gentle, um, unassuming colt that is, you know, um, there. But not only that, but that he actually led the mother with it. Because the colt really couldn't lead itself. It had never been ridden. So Matthew mentions more details about it. It wasn't just a colt. It was a colt and his mother, which kind of had to lead him around, okay? So he says, go untie the colt. Untie it and bring it here. If anybody asks you why are you untying it, tell him. The Lord needs it. Now, just imagine you've got the, you're the owner of that uh, colt and his mother, and they just come into town, and the, we're going to take this tied up, and it's your property. And he says, uh, "Why are you doing?" He said, "Well, the Lord told us to, that he needs it." And now, one of the other gospels says that uh, they told him they'd bring it back later. You know, so you see, they take it, but they said we'll bring it back later. The master needs it. He goes on and he says. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked him, Where are you Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, and they threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. Do you see the picture here? They throw their coats on there, which, why are they mentioning this unless it's symbolic of something? And then the people who are pilgrims who are basically all heading to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, there's large, large crowds of people. And they're all heading the same direction as they are on the pilgrims' route to go celebrate in Jerusalem the Passover. And so the people all start throwing their coats on the ground. And he's trotting over the coats as he's he's going to Jerusalem on this colt. When he came near the place where the road goes down to Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully praising God in a loud voice with all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory at the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. They're saying, tell them to stop saying that. Tell them to quit calling you the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the Messiah. Tell them to stop. Jesus said, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out as he, approached, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city. Now I want you to understand, he's gotten a hero's welcome. All the people, and I'm not talking about a few. This town would have hundreds of thousands of people. I mean, it would be packed full of people celebrating the Passover. And so a great multitude was with him giving him a hero's welcome. They were putting palm branches, they were putting colts on the ground. He was being celebrated as a king and he was fulfilling a prophecy that for hundreds of years they had waited for the one that would come in to rule and reign on the on the, on the donkey, on the basically the the young colt and came into town. So here he is celebrating. They're celebrating him. He doesn't tell them to stop. In fact, he arranged it. Do you notice how he arranged it by telling him to go get the donkey? He arranged the whole thing. He planned on it happening this way. And then the people were celebrating. And look what Jesus says. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. So in the middle of all this celebration, he begins to weep. And said, if you even if you even you had only known on this day what would bring your peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. the day will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. they will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls." They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you speak your message today, Lord. Lord, that you might be the king of our heart, Lord. Help me today, Lord, in your name I pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. Do you see that the... uh, The people miss something. They're celebrating and rightly so. But something is happening here that Jesus already knows that they miss something. He already recognizes that something that they're supposed to be seeing is going to be hidden from their eyes. He wants them to see it. He needs them to see it. They should see it. But he knows because of the condition. Everybody listen to the condition of their heart doesn't allow them to see it. Whatever this condition is in their heart, we better understand it because He wants to be the king of our heart today. You say, what about tomorrow? No, tomorrow isn't promised to us. He has to be the king of our heart today simply because tomorrow may not come. You don't have tomorrow, I don't have tomorrow. And that's a reality. And if tomorrow does come, I might not be there to remind you that He needs to be the king of your heart. I might not be there Tuesday in your living room preaching this message, believe it or not. I might be with the power of the internet. Who knows? But we have to decide, is he the king of my heart or is he not the king of my heart? And whatever's happening to these people where they can't see it, it can happen to us. It's very, very possible that we can miss him as the king of our heart. So what is Palm Sunday? Palm Sunday is the Sunday before the resurrection, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And basically, just to make sure everybody understands, I want to make sure before you leave, everybody understands this period of time because this kicks off the last eight days of Jesus' life. Some people call it a week, but really it's eight days. And this eight days is so important because Jesus uh, is the most important person in the history of the world. There's not a more important person that's ever walked on the face of the earth because this scripture started in the Garden of Eden, the beginning of man, the uh, the beginning of creation, the beginning of everything, and he was prophesied in that garden. Said that he's going to come one day, and when he comes, he's going to basically uh, set everything right. Everything that God needs to do to reverse what Adam and Eve did in the Garden, this one person's going to have to come, and he's here now. So he's the most important person in the history of the world. But that eight days of his life is uh, much more. In fact, there's a lens that shows the life of Jesus. And then there's a focus, a zoom in of his life, and it's the eight days. In fact, you may not know this, but here's some statistics. Matthew 21 through 28 is all about those eight days. It's one-fourth of the gospel of Matthew. So 25% of Matthew's gospel is those eight days. Mark, verses 11 through 16 are those eight days. It's one-fifth of his gospel. Now everybody knows the the four gospels are basically the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life, right? Right? So, all of the things that were written about his life, all of them different and all of them in a certain order to make us understand everything about this most important person. Mark is one third, Matthew's one fourth, Luke, chapters 19, 28, where we started today, all the way to 24, is one fifth of his gospel. And get this with John, it's chapters 12 through 21, it's a half of his gospel. So a full half, 50% of what John wrote was the eight days. Altogether, there are 89 chapters of gospel accounts about his life and 29 and a half, which uh, computes exactly to one-third of the gospels, is about the eight days. Now, how many think it's important? <laughs> the zoom in is really critical here. They're going through every detail of what he did in those days because the way he behaved, the way that he taught, the things that he did, everything is just symbolic. It's something, some type of message that he's trying to send to everybody about his kingdom. He's trying to explain how his kingdom works. He's trying to explain what his kingdom's going to be like. And, and so as he begins to do this, he gives something real interesting in Luke here. Right before we see 1928, and he asks him to go find the donkey, the colt, that he can ride in on, he's uh, heading toward uh, Jerusalem and he stops. And how many remember the story about the sycamore tree and there was this little tax collector up there and, boy, he was filthy rich. He was really rich and he was hated by the people. And they were hated by the people. They were considered to be very tightly associated with the Roman government and they were considered to be kind of traitors and they kind of blackmailed the people a lot and and, and took a lot of money that they they weren't entitled to and a lot of people didn't like him and Jesus is going through and and, um, he sees the little guy and he was little, specifically says he was very little. He was so short he couldn't see over the crowds. Just to tell you again how many crowds of people were going through with him toward Jerusalem. Okay, this little guy couldn't see. So being um, as intelligent as he was, which he was a very intelligent person probably, he climbs up in a tree just to get one look at him. And this is what's beginning to happen with Jesus. In fact, John, right before the triumphal entry, says that um, it wasn't too long before that he had raised a man from the dead. His name was Lazarus. And Lazarus lived in Bethany, which is two miles from Jerusalem. So it said that the crowds were even bigger than they had ever been, even for Passover, because everybody wanted to see Jesus, and they also wanted to see Lazarus. Then he puts another note in there that the chief priests were trying to kill Lazarus too, because they wanted to try to cover up all the great things that Jesus was doing, because everybody was just going crazy. He said there was a stirring in the city. The city was all stirred up. And so, just imagine, I know it's hard to do, but two miles from here, a man was raised from the dead. And it says in John that he was sitting there with Lazarus and his sisters, you know, just having a meal. And it actually almost became his uh, um, headquarters there in Bethany. And so these crowds of people were coming through. Zacchaeus is sitting up in the tree, multitudes of people. He sees him up there. The Holy Spirit is just witnessing through Jesus, and he says, hey, you need to come down from that tree. And he's like, why? You know, Because he pretty well knew that he wouldn't want anything to do with him because he was a sinner of all sinners. And we just don't understand that in our time, but he was. And you just didn't associate with him. You didn't rub shoulders with him at all. And Jesus said, hey, come down. I'm going to your house today to eat. He's like, oh, you are? (laughs) And he went to his house, and boy, they were confused all these multitudes of people, why is he offering to go to his house? And he says, I came to seek and save the lost. That's why I'm here. Because evidently they were confused about why he was there and why he was heading to Jerusalem. And then he says, it says, Jesus said to them, today salvation has come to your house. Because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. Then he says, while they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. Do you see where they were confused? Jesus already knew that they thought, as I go to Jerusalem... I'm going to establish my kingdom right now, and he knew that was wrong. And they're writing it in hindsight in this gospel because they knew we all believed that. You understand what's happening because something happened here. In fact, as you begin to look at the uh, the events that happened during this eight days, it's fascinating, and you need to understand this as a Christian. There are eight days here, and I want you to think about this for a second. It will blow your mind. He starts the eight days off a conquering hero. He's the son of David. He's the Messiah. He's the one that's going to establish this mighty kingdom. All right, He's going to overrule the Roman government that we're under the uh, control of right now. We don't have any freedom. In fact, uh, I think we were reading the other day, what did it say? Five out of seven people Uh, in that area were slaves under the Roman government. They were under the control of the Roman government. The Roman government made sure at every turn to let them know because the peace of Rome was a big deal. And if you overstepped and there was not peace, they expected there to always be peace in the Roman provinces. And if there weren't, they would stack crosses all over the hillside and make people walk by them and see people crucified in the most cruel way so nobody would ever do it again. We're going to have peace, and you're going to recognize how painful this is. And it'll never happen again. It might be men. It might be women. It might be children. But you're going to watch somebody on a cross because we want you to remember there's going to be peace in Rome, a heavy, heavy hand. And so this week, Jesus comes in. A conquering hero, which alone makes him a target of being executed. How many know that? The fact that they're, when they start waving palm branches, you say, well, what is that? That's the equivalent of waving a patriotic flag. When they wave the palm branches, that's patriotism. That's saying that we're going to overthrow the Roman government. And every time they wave that palm branch, the Roman government's. I just turned up a little bit. I said, "Okay, we got ourselves another insurrectionist here." And so, as they begin to throw them on the ground, that's them saying that we are—we have allegiance. We have allegiance to your cause. We're going with you. We're all in. You imagine all the multitudes and multitudes and multitudes of people. In order to make a path for a guy to walk that far to Jerusalem? Do you know how many people were in allegiance with him? Ready to overtake the Roman government? And they threw it down as a sign that we're with you, we're patriotic, we're for Israel, we're for the insurrection, we're for what you're about to do. Hosanna in the highest. Glory to God. Glory to God. And as he begins to go to town, he starts crying. Why is he crying and everybody else is ready for insurrection? Because he knows something they don't. He sees something they don't see. Something's hidden from them that's not hidden from him. And so as he begins to head to town, I want you to think about this. Five days. Eight days total, but in the fifth day. First day he's a conquering hero, the fifth day... All the people are gathered together. In fact, let me read it. I'm skipping forward in the story, but in Luke, you see in 22 that Judas agrees to betray him. In chapter 23, it says, The whole assembly rose and led him to Pilate. They begin to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes Payments and taxes to Caesar, and claims to be Christ, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, "Are you the King of the Jews?" "Yes," it is, as you say," Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and the crowd, "I find no basis to charge him." But they insisted he stirs up the people all over Judea by reaching. He started in Galilee and comes all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod, he sent him to, to Herod. Who was also in Jerusalem at the time when Herod saw Jesus. He was greatly pleased because for a long time he wanted to see him. He wanted to see Jesus for a long time. And it says he was hoping that Jesus would do a miracle in front of him. <laughs> you see him like just like a little fan, you know. It's like I've been waiting a long time to see a miracle. Do one in front of me because I'm a king. And I want to see a miracle, right? So he goes on. He wanted him to perform some miraculous sign. He piled him with many questions, and Jesus gave him no answers. The chief priests, teachers of the law, were standing there, vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him, dressing him up. You see, Herod and his soldiers dressed him up and mocked him. Then we go on. It says Pilate called together the chief priests and the rulers, and who? The people. And said to them, you brought me this man as one of the inciting people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charge. Herod found no charges. Pilate found no charges. In fact, it goes on and it says, Neither has Herod, but he sent him back to us, as you can see. He has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then let him go. With one voice... They cried out, Away with this man, release Barabbas. Away with this man. Barabbas has been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, Crucify him, crucify him. For the third time he spoke to them, Wait, what crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then I'll release him. With a loud voice, they insisted, insistently demanded that he be crucified. And their shouts prevailed, so Pilate decided to grant their demands. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. And the one they asked for, surrendered. they surrendered Jesus to their will. Do you understand the people changed in five days? Something happened here. Something happened to where he was the one that was going to save them and they were saying, Hosanna, which means save us, you're the one. You're going to come in and you're going to do this and we're all behind you and we are throwing down our palm leaves and we are allegiant to you and we are patriotic and let's go, let's do this, we're behind you, we love you. You are our king. And then all of a sudden, five days later, he's not their king anymore. They would rather have a murderer and an insurrectionist than have him. And you say, well, what's this have to do with my heart? Because whatever happened to them, whatever blinded them to who he was and what he was doing, can blind your heart this morning. And if you don't figure out what it is that's being hidden from you, you never may meet the real Jesus. You may have a false Jesus that you accept. Because here's the thing Barabbas' first name was Jesus. How many know that? It's a fact of history that his name was Jesus Barabbas. Barabbas means uh, son of the father. They believe his father was a rabbi. His name definitely was Jesus, but they didn't put it on there out of respect for Jesus, they didn't put it in the text. So you have Jesus, and you have Jesus. Make a choice. So what did they want when he came into town? Let's put that on the side burner for a second. Let's look at some of the events that happened as we come in here. Jesus had intentionally staged his entry into Jerusalem, correct? Correct. Intentionally allowed it, he intentionally staged it. But it wasn't the only procession that day, did you know that? Did you know that his procession wasn't the only procession that went into town that day? In fact, it was a very well-known fact that if the Jews were going to get rowdy and want to overthrow the government, which they had done so many times in the past, They had so many people rise up and say that they were Messiah. They had so many people rise up and say, we're going to to win independence for our nation. That the Romans were always on high alert when it was Passover time. So the Romans, many years earlier under um, the original Herod, the father of this Herod, they originally built a fortress right on the temple grounds. It was the Antonin Fortress, and it was named after Mark Antony. and, and, And that fortress was there specifically to make sure they didn't get unruly. So the other procession that happened in that day happened in the opposite end of town and came to the temple. Jesus came from the other side. I don't know if they could have happened at the same time, but history shows it was the same day. And so what the Romans would do, if you were a foreign power and you wanted to make sure that they didn't get unruly, how would you do that? You would make sure you intimidated the people. So the Roman procession was different. In fact, every other leader that came in to destroy a foreign power approached that in a different way. In fact, Alexander the Great, who believed himself to be a god, his mother had told him his whole life he was a god. And when he was a young boy... His father, Philip of Macedon, had bought this massive horse. In fact, it had been bred specially, and it was the biggest horse they'd ever seen. It was massive. But the problem was that it was so stubborn and so strong that nobody could ever break it. And Alexander, as a boy, as the legend goes, which most of it's probably made up, I would think, but as a boy, Alexander was the only one that could break that horse. So when Alexander... Uh, 370 years earlier came through that region, boy, you feared Alexander. I mean, look at that massive horse. And that horse in battle was a knowing horse. I mean, it had instincts of battle. It had instincts to run. had instincts to go into the battle. Well, the Romans were similar to these great conquerors of the past. They wanted to really intimidate them. So when they came through town, Pilate, had all of his Roman guard with him. In fact, they didn't normally have a large presence in that particular fortress. But at certain times of the year, they would bring everybody there. Kind of like the fall festival, right? Normally, there's not a lot of police on Franklin Street. But when there's 100,000 people in the streets, all of a sudden, we have a heavy police force. We want people to see them everywhere. Well, it's no different in their day. The Romans came through with polished shields. They had their best... Um, looking uh, officers' uniforms on, they came through town. The procession was loud. You could hear the drums. You could hear the magnificent, see magnificent horses. All their weaponry. Everything was done to a T, and they made sure everybody in town seen that they were coming through the center of town to the temple. So Jesus wanted to stage a, profe- a procession intentionally to show that he was coming in to become a king. So he said, okay, I see what you're doing, Pilate. I'm going to up the ante here. Go to the next town, and you'll see a young colt of a donkey. It's still probably nursing with its mother. It's never been ridden. It has no ability to even direct itself. Mom's going to have to lead it. Matthew clearly says that both of them were brought, and the mother had to lead. That's how he's going to come in as a conquering king on the little donkey. Do you see the differences here? Okay, it's intentional. Zechariah nine nine says, Behold, here comes your king riding on a young donkey, a colt. And you say, Well, I've heard that voice a lot of times before, but I've never thought about it. All right? This isn't, Donkey that was on Shrek with Eddie Murphy. This is Eddie Murphy when he was a little kid. All right? All right, I'm a little kid. Let's go to Jerusalem. Do You see that this is not powerful. This is almost a joke. You understand what I'm saying? That donkey always symbolized in the past peace. It's peace. In fact, Solomon uh, rolled a donkey to go get anointed king. And the purpose of that donkey was David had already destroyed every enemy during his reign. Solomon would have 40 years of peace because there was nobody left to fight because David conquered every enemy around Jerusalem. So he was anointed as king riding a donkey because there was no battle to fight. And so here comes Jesus in this procession and they're like waving the palm leaves and they said, man, here is our king. And here he is from the other end of town after this other great procession of power. And here he is on his donkey. Giddy up. <laughs> Come on. That little donkey's trying to bear the load and mom's kind of leading him along. And and uh, there's no talking donkeys. I just want to get your attention. I'm sorry. <laughs> we'll edit that out. All right. <laughs> yeah, there was one in the Old Testament. Um, but anyway... They're coming into town and something changed, and this is what we've got to find out. What changed? How did they go from our conquering hero to crucify him? We don't want him. We want the other guy. Barabbas is one of your answers. Barabbas begins to reflect the heart of the people because they said, Give us Jesus Barabbas and send Jesus away to be crucified. Jesus Barabbas was one that decided by the strength of his own resolve, by his own power, I'm going to lead an insurrection and we're going to overthrow the Roman government. He murdered people to try to do that. He, he got together legions of people. In fact, they say that um, a thief was not considered a capital punishment. Yet who was on either side of Jesus? Jesus. Thieves, And they say about the only way that they could be being crucified as thieves was to be a part of his insurrection. So here's a man that led an insurrection. Here's a man that killed people trying to overthrow the Roman government. Here's a guy that did everything that they wanted Jesus to do. In fact, do you know that they were throwing their cloaks in front of him as he was coming into town? There's another place in the Bible where they're throwing cloaks down. And to give you an idea what this means to throw your cloak down on the ground in front of Jesus. When they had um, accused Stephen and wanted to stone Stephen to death, Saul was one of those people that was standing there collecting the coats. It was their prayer shawl that said, Lord of Lord, King of Kings. It was them submitting to the will of God. When they threw their coats down, they were saying, we're not only allegiant to you and loyal, but however you want to do it, we're in. We give our, in fact, uh, they were submitting to the verdict of Stephen when they threw their coats down. They're saying, we agree with this judgment, let's stone him. So they threw their coats down and it was an act of submission. So as Jesus coming to town, we're allegiant to you. We're ready to overthrow the government. We're submissive to however you want to do it. But here's the problem. Jesus wasn't there to overthrow the Roman government. Jesus knew what God had called him to do. Jesus knew, I'm not marching into a battle to overcome the Romans. I'm marching to death. I'm going from here straight to that cross, and I'm doing something totally different. You don't even know what I'm doing, but when you figure it out, you need to know that what I'm doing is much more important than what the Roman government is doing. And if you want to follow me, you better figure out what I'm doing, because Jesus had three things that I wrote down here. He had, he had a different way, he had a different enemy, and he had a different throne. A different way, a different enemy, and a different throne. And whatever it was, it was hidden from them, they couldn't see it, and they didn't want it. And He's going to come into your life the same way He's going to come in gently on a donkey. He's going to come in very gently and try to be a part of your life. He's going to come in as the Prince of Peace, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. And He's going to come in gently. But the Bible says that there's going to come a day in Revelation 19 and Isaiah 63. It says He's going to come in on a charger, a white horse. And He's going to execute judgment and every enemy will be shattered. That's who they thought was coming that day. In fact, they were so confused, commentators will look at the triumphant entry and they will say, why are there elements here of the, of the Feast of Booths and Tabernacles? That's a fall feast. Why are they showing signs of celebrating the fall feast in the springtime? fact, like some commentators will say, well, maybe Jesus died in the fall because they're doing things here that they do at fall feasts. Because the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles is when God establishes His kingdom on earth. There was a certain way they were building those leaves as He was moving that indicate they were celebrating a Feast of Booths out of season. They were mixing you know, some things together, some elements there. They fully expected this to be the day He establishes His kingdom and when He didn't do it, they were brokenhearted. In fact, I wrote this down. What happens when you have an appointment and you show up and it has not happened the way you expected? Have you ever had an appointment? Hey, we're going to meet noon on Tuesday. And there you are with bells on waiting to meet on Tuesday at noon. And the person doesn't remember the appointment. Now what you have is what's called a Disappointment. And so a lot of times when we receive Jesus as the king of our life, we have all kinds of appointments set for him. He's going to do it this way. He's going to do it that way. He's going to do it this way. I'm going to be victorious. I'm going to succeed. Everything's going to be perfect. And here's the prayers that we pray. God, if you will do this, I will serve you as my king. God, if you will do this, I will serve you as my God. I don't know how many people have been bitter their entire life because somebody was sick and God didn't heal them at that moment. Or I wanted a job and God didn't give it to me. Or I was in trouble and God didn't get me out of it. We have appointments that are set, that are set by us and us alone, and God's not a part of that appointment. And when it didn't happen, we had what's called a disappointment. The appointment was dissed. You ever been dissed on an appointment? And they were shattered. They didn't know how to deal with disappointment. He came in a different way and they didn't understand it. He came in a totally different way. His ways were higher than their ways. We've already had one leader after another. In fact, 160 years before this event, the Maccabees came in and did what they were hoping would happen again. The Maccabees, led by Judas Maccabeus, who was called Judas the Hammer. And the Maccabean revolt overthrew the Syrian control of Israel. And the Maccabean revolt was a disaster. Mark it down if you're taking notes. It was a disaster for Israel. They brought in a, uh, the family, the, the other brother. Dad died immediately in the revolt. The brother was around for a while, but then another brother named Simon became their king and their high priest. That family was bought by the Roman government. That family ended up becoming the Sadducees who ran the temple. And you say, well, man, what was Jesus like when he came in? He, what, what did he do to deserve that execution? What he did was he was breaking up all the results of the Maccabean revolt, which is what they wanted again. They became, they became profiteers of the temple. First thing he did was walked into the temple and he said, Hey, look at this temple. This was supposed to be in a, a house of prayer for all the nations. And in the area called the area for the Gentiles, which I want Gentiles to draw close and love me, you're selling things. And he said he began to turn over their tables. This is the Maccabean family that's in the temple. They're Sadducees now. They own the high priesthood. They own, at one point, they were king and high priest. And he starts turning the tables over. Not only did he turn the tables over, he found anybody that had merchandise. They, were, they, were, they made a big business out of selling animals for sacrifice. And they were selling like, hey, you know, I've been to the temple and all I got was this T-shirt. You know, they were selling all these things in here. Maybe not T-shirts, okay. Maybe it was like in the form of a robe or something. I don't know. But they were selling merchandise, and Jesus actually stopped. This is a 30-acre complex. He turned all the money changers' tables over. Uh, He began to stop anybody that had merchandise, and he told them to drop the merchandise and get out. You think he was being popular? He wasn't just going through saying, Peace, man. Peace, dude. He was upsetting the system. He came in and began to cleanse the temple. And they were saying, rise up, be our Judah the hammer. He was like, no, 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 that's not what I'm doing. Not what I'm doing. And then another thing that came out of the Maccabean revolt was the Pharisees. Well, he probably let them go. They were the teachers of the day. No, they had became elite teachers. Nobody could be a part of what they did. They were wealthy too had so much money they could afford to put rules on people that they had all day to sit and try to to obey. These rulers, one was the liberals. The Sadducees were the liberals of the day. The Pharisees were the extreme conservatives of the day. The Pharisees made so many rules that if you pick this chair up in your yard and you did this, you're all right. But if you pick that same chair up and you did that, you're guilty of a major sin. What did I do? You plowed the ground. The ground can't be plowed on Sabbath. They started making rules up that weren't biblical. They didn't have anything to do with the Bible. And uh, they didn't have anything to do with the Bible and Jesus went about just breaking all those extra rules. He was like, yeah, I'm breaking this rule. Show me in the Word where it's at. I'm breaking this rule. Show me where it's at. I'm breaking this rule. Show me where it's at. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who were the liberals and the ultra-liberal, ultra-conservative, they became friends. They were like, yeah, we've got to get rid of him. We've got to kill Lazarus because he's alive and he was dead. He was better off dead. He was healing all these people. We've got to get rid of them. You know, and then and then Pilate and Herod hated each other, and it says in that in Luke there that they became good friends through Jesus. And so all of a sudden they're friends now. And here comes Jesus through here, and then they're like, "Well, man, we can't find anything wrong with. We can't put this guy to death. Even Herod, Herod was bloodthirsty. He couldn't put him to death. Give us Bar Sabbath. Give give us Barabbas. Give us Son of the Father." Give us the other Jesus. And you say, well, man, how could I do that? I mean, how could I make that same mistake? Here's how you make that same mistake. You don't understand that he has a different way than you do. When you throw that palm leaf around and you say, Lord, I'm allegiant to you and only you, you better mean it. Lord, I'm devoted to you and only you. I'm not devoted to my wife. I'm not devoted to my husband. I'm not devoted to my children. I'm not devoted to my country. I'm not devoted to anything over you. I'm allegiant to you. Wherever you take me, I will go just like Ruth. I'll go where you go. I'll be led where you lead me, Lord. And then it says they threw their cloaks down and agreed. They were submissive to his will. However you want to do it, I'll do it. Well, the people didn't do it that day. Because the people already had an idea how he was going to do it. And when he didn't do it that way, when he was arrested and charged and beaten and all these things happened, even his disciples abandoned him. It went from a crowd of people following him in the city as a victory lap. And by the time five days came along, there was nobody around. By the time the eight days came around, he was dead on a cross and nobody even wanted to be around the cross. Nobody was devoted to him. Nobody was loyal. Nobody was submissive. And what God's saying is, when you serve me as your Lord, I do it a different way. Don't you tell me how to do it. Don't tell me how to be God. You say, but God, I went through this. Throw your cloak down and say, I'll submit. You say, well, what's the alternative? Give me the other Jesus. The power of Jesus. The one that does it with his own strength. The one that overcomes there, the one that sends to bring power to himself. Are we submitting to the real Jesus or are we saying, give me the other one? And God's saying, I do it a different way. And so Jesus has a different way. He had a different enemy. They were squarely looking at the Roman government and all of their enemies, right? The common people were looking at the Sadducees and they were tired of it. They are looking at the Pharisees and they were tired of it. The common people really wanted Jesus, And they had their eyes set on becoming free and having a Davidic kingdom again and a Messiah. But Jesus' eyes weren't in the same place as them. Jesus was looking at the cross and he knew the cross was his portal to hell. So they're looking at the Roman government in this present world. They were so in love with this present world, they didn't care about the world to come. And Jesus was saying very clearly, I'm here to seek and save the lost. You think I'm setting up a kingdom on earth. But I'm here to save the lost. So as he's marching toward the cross, he's thinking about what's going to happen. And he knows every single prophecy is only fulfilled with the cross. Only by being a suffering servant. Only by dying And going to hell, can he deliver everybody from hell? And so he's squarely focused on the cross. He's on a death march. They're trying to set up a kingdom. And he's saying, My kingdom is gonna come when I go to hell and I fight the ultimate, the ultimate enemy of your soul, the enemy, the, the enemy that caused the Maccabeans to be corrupt. The enemy that caused Alexander, the great, to be corrupt. The the influence that caused the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Romans to be corrupt. You can't rule over yourself. I've got bigger things on my side and that's the enemy of your soul. The one that brought evil to this world and brought the sickness and the death. You notice everywhere that he went, the battles that he fought were demons, sickness, disease. Everything that sin has done to this world. He wasn't after the rulers of this world. He wanted their soul too. And we can accept Jesus and say, Jesus, you are my magic genie. You're just here to make my life comfortable. My life wonderful. You're my political savior. We're going to make it a heaven on earth. And my whole life's goal is to be a heaven on earth. And Jesus is saying, I got deeper things. I got bigger things. I got bigger fish to fry than you. I'm sorry bigger things. I'm going to fight the enemy of your soul. I'm going to go into hell. I'm going to rip the gate off. I'm going to take the keys to death and my kingdom. In fact, did you notice he had a triumphal entry and he hadn't even fought that battle yet? It's like, I win. Here I am. And they're like, he's losing, he's losing. Look, he's losing. All of hell was laughing and saying he's losing. And the Bible says, had they known what they were doing, They would never have done it because he made an open show of them publicly. They didn't realize until he died he fulfilled every scripture, every Old Testament prophecy to a T. And had they known, had the enemy known that they were fulfilling prophecy, they would not have done it. And then had they known that when he dies, he goes to hell like everybody else, hell was invincible. Hell was not vulnerable to attack. Nobody could go to hell and even attack the enemy because the enemy had the keys. There's no way that you could come against that enemy unless one dies who is without sin. Oh, I'm getting excited too. That guy wants to start shouting. Only one guy could come in to hell and release him. And when the enemy found out, what do you think that was like? like, he's dead, he's dead. And they're like, here I am. She's like They're like, what are you doing here? I died. And all those people that had been righteous their whole life were in a compartment there. And there he was in hell. And David said, God will not allow my soul to corrupt. God, God will not allow my soul to, to um, rot in hell. God will deliver me from the depths of hell. And here was Jesus Christ fighting a battle much bigger than the Romans, the Romans. Jesus had said 10,000 angels a any moment could have said. But the bigger battle was every demon. In fact, it's, it's amazing. I, I could go into... I'm not going to go into another thing, but it's... What he did, the battle that he won that day, there's never been a military leader that's ever accomplished what he accomplished in one day. The power over sin, sickness, death, everything. He established his kingdom. So he had a different enemy. And the last thing, he had a different throne. had a different throne. Do you know that he walked right in in the way that all of it is written is? A coronation of a king. And his throne looked like a cross. You say, well, how do you know it was his throne? Because there was a thing over the top that said, King of the Jews. And it says, If I be lifted up, all men will be drawn to me and saved. Came in on a donkey, didn't try to intimidate, didn't try to show his power, just came in and simply said, I win. goes through town, takes all the punishment of every wicked person, takes the blow from everybody that wants to harm him, everybody wants to hurt him. He was beaten more than man any man had ever been beaten. He was unrecognizable. The Bible said he was marred more than any man had ever been marred, had been beaten. Everybody had done everything they wanted to do to him. And instead of wanting to overthrow the Romans, he's trying to win them, win their soul. You tell me that's not a bigger man and a bigger warrior. He's telling them he loves them. They don't know what they're doing. He's telling them, God, forgive them. He's telling one of the thieves on the cross who deserved to be there, you'll be with me in paradise tomorrow. Church, do you know what he was doing that day? He wept because all Jerusalem did not know. Jerusalem wouldn't accept him because he didn't come the way they wanted him to come. And I'm just telling you today, church, you're going to go through your whole life and you're going to have a lot of disappointments. And what God's asking you to do is, through every disappointment, take that leaf, that palm branch and say, my allegiance is to you and only you. Take your coat, which is your prayer shawl to them, their outer garment, throw it down and say, I submit to your will. Whatever you want to do, however you want to do it, do it. And if you'll do that, you'll accept Jesus as the king of your life and you won't receive one who's not a king, which is Barabbas. He's a, symptom, he's a, he's a symbol of a selfish person that's fighting for himself. He's a symbol of, of really the enemy of our soul. Barabbas is the alternative Jesus that a lot of people accept. And what do you think happens when they accept that Jesus? As soon as it doesn't happen the way I want it to happen, I'm going to reject him. Have you ever seen somebody who was so angry at Jesus Christ? If you even bring up his name, you just see, oh, oh, grit their teeth. I want to hear that name. And it's because they serve the wrong Jesus. They got a disappointment. I promise you that's what happened. They thought they wanted to serve Jesus, but then they got a disappointment. They had an expectation of their own that wasn't fulfilled. And they said, crucify him. Crucify him. He needs to die. He needs to die. He needs to die. Why would they do it? Does it make any sense? We love him. He's our king. And now let him die. Let him die. Crucify him. Get him out of here. I don't want to hear that name. I don't want anything to do with Jesus Christ. I don't even want you to say it. Because they didn't know they had no idea what he was doing that day. Praise the Lord. Stand on your feet. Praise the Lord. As the worship team comes up here, I'm just gonna ask you the best way to celebrate Palm Sunday? Wave those palms. You say, Well, we don't have palm trees. We got palms. Don't we? Wave those palms and say, God, my allegiance is to you and your kingdom and your kingdom only. There's nothing bigger than your kingdom, not my family, not my friends, nothing, Lord God. My allegiance is to you, Lord, the way you want to do it, not the way I want to do it. And then take that coat and say, God, I submit myself to you no matter what disappointment comes my way. Church, it doesn't matter. We're in a short period of time here. We're in a... Life is like a vapor. It's not going to be very long. And all God asks us to do is stay submitted to Him through all the disappointments. Can we do that? Every disappointment. You say, what kind of disappointments? They're going, to be, they're going to be difficult. They're going to be really hard disappointments in life. How many know that to be true? But what we're saying is, He's my King. He's my Lord. His plan is better than my plan. His better is better than the plan I had in my mind. And I submit myself to Him today. If you've never given your heart to the Lord, I want you to find me. Find me after the service and privately. I want to pray with you. I want to lead you to the Lord. But if you've served the Lord, if you love the Lord, if He's your King no matter what, I want you to begin to worship Him. Just lay your disappointments down today. Lord, just lead me in that area. If you've got disappointments, bitterness, lay it down. Just lay it down and say, God, I submit to you all my disappointments. All those things, Lord God, disappointments. How many can lay those down today? Disappointments, Lord. Praise the Lord. As I close today, I want to read you this. In Luke chapter 23, verse 26, right after uh, everybody had turned on him, it said, crucify him, crucify him, and we want Barabbas. It says, and they led him away. They see Simon the, from Cyrene, was on his way in from the country and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. There were some people that knew the real Jesus, knew his mission, and you know, the Bible says that we're all going to have to bear our cross. In fact, from the early time of the church, they called this eight days, the passion of Jesus. And the reason they call it the passion of Jesus is it means that he endured because it was the love of his life. The desire of his life was us. And because of that desire and passion for us, he endured everything. Everything. And so the triumphant entry is the beginning of what they call the passion of Jesus. And you know, we're called to have that same endurance. We're going to have to be like Simon who carries that cross and endures because of our love for him. He carried it, and think about this procession. Maybe you've never thought about it before, but he's carrying it for Jesus this whole crowd of faithful people are still following. That's what I want to be. That's where I want to be on that day. If I were there, that's where I would want to be. I don't want to be the ones turning on Him. I want to be the one that knows I have to endure because I love Him. Some of you are going to carry that cross through your workplace. Spiritually, you're going to have to endure some things, some disappointments, and you're going to have to endure it for your passion for Jesus. Some of you are going to carry it at school. Some of you are going to carry it around your family, but God has called us to endure the cross like Christ did. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Lord, bless them today, Lord God. Put your spirit upon them, Lord God. Father, I pray for revelation of who you are, Lord. Or pour your spirit upon this church, Lord God, in a mighty way. In your name I pray. Everybody say amen.